Hello, folks. This is Liz. Now, before we begin Kitchfork Season 2, our best new music season, um, I have a few things I wanted to say before we start. First, this episode was recorded, I think both of us were away from our usual location. I was in Seattle and Max was in Texas. So my audio in particular is a little weird. It clips several times. I tried to edit around that and do some audio surgery, but just I microphone wasn't properly set up with my computer, so I think that's it. But secondly, our sponsor, Imitone, I need to retool some things because the thing to get a discount wasn't properly set up, so I will repost it once I talk more to Evan, who runs Imitone. But yes, I'll bring that back at some point. But yes, Third, our schedule has obviously been very sporadic. I think we've decided to just kind of do whatever we can to manage. We're trying to be more regular about it, but I don't want to promise everything. So a little peek behind the scenes. We kind of alternate editing episodes usually, and it's kind of hard to get on the same schedule. So I don't really want to promise anything other than to say that we're going to try to be more active. Obviously, we're doing this for free right now. I mean, I have a Patreon just in general for my whole creative output, but I've considered making a Patreon for this podcast. But I don't think we're really at that point yet, but that's something, you know, we might circle back on. Uh, The other thing is this album that we're doing now was the first of our two poll winners that I polled on Twitter. Now, who knows what Twitter is going to be like in six months, but we have another poll winner that we're going to do two episodes from now. So I'm excited for that. We are going to do more polls. But yes, also, because I don't mention it in this episode, once again, we have a show email. It's kitchporkpodcast at gmail.com, just spelled like our normal podcast with podcast at the end, no spaces at gmail. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if you can. It helps with visibility. But yes, anyway, without further ado, it's time to get twee. Welcome to the Kitchfork Podcast, an anti-nostalgic look at the indie music of the 2000s and growing up as a child of the internet. I am your co-host, Liz Ryerson. And I am your other co-host, Max Cohen. And today we're beginning season two of Kitchfork, the best new music season. (laughs) 
by talking about seminal, according to some people, <laughs> uh, breakout album by the artist Sufjan Stevens, Greetings from Michigan, the Great Lakes State from 2003. Mm-hmm. So, yes, let's begin. What is your history, Max, with this album? Oh, God. For one thing, we selected this album via poll. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this album, this is my worst case scenario, is this, this album winning. <laughs> I knew it was going to win. I had already suggested this at like, you know, when we did our right. beginning episodes, you know, and did Broken Social Scene. This was one of them that instantly came to mind, but I knew you didn't like Sufjan Stevens. And doing the poll was part of <laughs> part of a manipulation on my part. To convince me to do it. <laughs> well, because I kind of knew that it would win. I didn't know that the Decemberists would be so fucking close. But... No, which would have been a whole other issue. No, I think um, it's good that we're doing it. And it's important to cover albums that are essential to this history, even if we don't like them, because this is an anti-nostalgic chronicling of the times that were. Sufjan, <gasps> yeah, my, my best friend in high school loved Sufjan Stevens. He was, at heart, a snotty little sad folky kid. Ah, uh, yes. One of, the, one of those, which sometimes is good when you like Elliot Smith, and sometimes is bad when you like this uh, little gay banjo player. So I heard it a lot in his car. I, I probably heard this whole album several times in that car and would never, ever buy it because I, I, I didn't care for it for reasons we'll get into. And I never kept up with Sufjan Stevens for the reason that we'll get into this. It's so hard for me to convey why I don't like Sufjan Stevens because it's something innate in the way he writes songs Oh, that I, I deeply dislike. <laughs> That's interesting. But I will say later on, he did much more interesting stuff. Uh, this album, to me at the time, felt like it was part of the twee middle of the road music boom of the early aughts with like Travis and Elbow, which who are all British, but still. Oh, man. I don't know if I agree with that. I, I, I think in hindsight, that's not true. At the time, it felt like there's a lot of milk toast, fucking <laughs> vaguely inspirational, emotional music. There's a lot of like folky grandiosity, I should say. Yeah, I can see the folky grandiosity part of it. Uh, but this is the first time I ever really sat down and listened to this album, which did not change my opinion, but gave me a lot more things to think about. <laughs> I was going to ask you if it changed your opinion. No, this is still some Charlie Brown ass nonsense, but, um, <laughs> but, but it's important. Sufjan Stevens was such a big deal. Is such a big deal. I'm afraid. Oh, is, is he still? I mean, at least up until Carrie and Lowell, yes. everyone was fucking talking about that album. Carrie and Lowell was absolutely still big, but I haven't heard anything about what he's been doing since. I heard his album that came out, I think 2020 and it was, Extremely long and eminently forgettable to me. Hey, that's the Sophie and Stevens deal. <laughs> it sounded like a, a less interesting version of the Age of Odds. Mm. And it had like a theme of America that just was like, uh. Yeah, this this guy um, in America. But yes, so I, when Pitchfork launched Bestie Music, I think that was really the start of like, me engaging and being aware of Pitchfork Indie as a thing. Right. Yeah, because they had like excellent SEO and they would come up if you search for bands and albums. Like I had certainly read their um, Radiohead Kid A review at some point. 
we all remember where we were when we read that Kid A review. <laughs> yes. I didn't really have much patience to read the whole reviews, to be honest. But which, but that's why the best new music thing was such a brilliant idea, is that you, you kind of didn't have to. They would just highlight the album worth looking at. And there's actually kind of an interesting history with this album and that that I can talk about in a second. But yeah, um, when they launched Best New Music, I I went through, I was like trying to understand why I picked the albums that I did. And then I realized that they organized by genre. <laughs> and I just picked all the ones that said indie pop or indie rock. Of course. Because <laughs> I was one of those people. <laughs> That's the good shit. That's how you know. Uh-huh. I mean, I like I'm looking at that list now and it's like, wow, there's actually stuff that I would like more now that I just kind of completely missed missed out on. And apparently everyone else collectively did the same thing I did <laughs> <laughs> because a lot of the bands that I was like into from that seemed to be popular pitchfork bands. So but yeah, I downloaded a few tracks from a bunch of different albums that were on that list, like The Shins which I talked about in our Shins episode. Mm-hmm. And this Sufjan Stevens album, I think Broken Social Scene, The Wrens, Menomena, or I think that's how you pronounce them. Yeah, I, yeah, Menomena, I remember them. And this was one of the, uh, I downloaded two songs. I downloaded All Good Naysayers, Speak Up, and uh, Romulus, and I really liked it. But I never actually heard this full album until much later but my brother got his next album seven swans and i remember listening to that a bunch in high school so i never became a full-fledged fan of sufjan stevens but i always kind of liked him but i i kind of checked out um i still basically like this album but you know there are things that we can talk about with it i think the history is kind of interesting with it and best new music which we can talk about because while doing research, um, and again, I'm recording in Seattle yeah. right now uh, after two episodes about the Pacific Northwest, which is kind of funny. I will say I'm recording from Texas right now where I've been driving around listening to Lonesome Crowded West again. <laughs> so We still have that on the brain. We are, we are deep in it, yeah. So uh, I don't know. I didn't feel like it did as comprehensive research, and this will probably be a little bit shorter for an episode, but... But also, we're we're gonna come back to Sufjan, like. Oh yeah, we will. He's too important too, and I I hate Illinois and uh, odds less than this. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, because I don't necessarily agree with that. I, ne- I don't necessarily like them, but I, I hate them less for for aesthetic reasons. Okay. But yes, the best new music was kind of a, I guess you could call it like a marketing thing that launched in 2003. So here's a little description. When Pitchfork did its, the history of the Pitchfork reviews section and 38 important reviews thing, which is kind of like their most self-referential Pitchfork history. One of them, yeah. Yeah. The review for... For Apple O, the Deerhoof album, they talk about this. They said, In spring 2003, Ryan Schreiber was thinking about how to make a running list of the strongest recent albums available for Pitchfork's readers. It had been a big year for independent music and for the site, the Broken Social Scene review from February being the most prominent example. And since the search function was limited, it made sense to assemble the most crucial albums on a dedicated page. So yeah, you could only like look down and it just had a giant list of artists. Like you could go alphabetically, but the search function didn't really work. Yes, it was it was so busted and slow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you look back on the version of that page and archive, it was, you know, designed in the way a lot of websites were 
in that era. It's interesting, like, how you realize, like, how everything was designed for a much, like, smaller monitor. Right. Because, <laughs> like, if you, like, look at the archive.org snapshots now, it's, like, it's all crammed on one side of the screen. Yep, yep. Uh, which is kind of funny. But it says, an advantage that Pitchfork had over print was we could do a best of the year list in real time, Ryan Schreiber says. Inspiration came in part from the Penguin Guide to Jazz, which included star grades for records and marked some with a crown to indicate an essential release of special merit. The Best New Music section launched in late March 2003. Wow, we're like almost at the 20th anniversary here when we're recording. But it would be a few years before the designation showed up on individual pages alongside the score. So, yes, um, I found one of the original snapshots of, like, the Pitchfork webpage when they put up Best New Music. And this is what it says. It says, Editor's Picks. For ages, we've been receiving requests for a section running down the best new music. So I was thinking about how to make something like this manageable in addition to all of our other daily content. Originally, I'd planned to just drop everything that scores an 8.5 rating or higher in this section, but looking back at recent ratings, I thought it might be more effective to make this section even more exclusive. So these ones are the sure shots, a selective offering of the records I think are most likely to appeal to virtually everyone who reads this site. And then they, they rank them according to the date the reviews first appeared on Pitchfork al- along with the genres. Uh, so you could sort of pick it out, which is... I think what I did, and yeah, I think this when Best New Music launch was really like the the key that helped them, yeah, blow up. It's a very internet age thing to have. Like with one look, you can see if there's anything worth checking out. Yeah, and like a later snapshot from 2003, there's a new description. It says, "Holy shit, we love everything." Not really, but as of late October, we might not blame you for thinking that. Nothing's gotten into us. It's just that this fall's harvest is so far fucking insane. <laughs> not only are so many anticipated records striking gold, but our promo stacks of virtual unknowns are reaping their own share of unexpected brilliance. At this point, we're being hit with great music from all sides, and while we can't expect it to last, for now we can't help ourselves. Classically restrained pitchfork. Yeah, And at this point, if you look on the left-hand side of the site where they had a list of recent reviews, the best new music ones would appear with like asterisks and bold near them. So you could click on them from there. So, you know, you could see the the Chick 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 or the Basement Jacks albums that were recently reviewed. But yeah, I think the, the best new music was really the key for me in like pushing me to look at the site. It encourages you to like, specifically pick things that like as the year is going on that might match with your specific interests or whatever it also kind of feels like the beginning of pitchfork as a tastemaker where it feels like if a band got best new music regardless of their stature before they would soon become like a thing yeah and that definitely happened with sufjan stevens so Mm -hmm. let's try to do a quick history of sufjan here So many of you may have heard of the whole 50 States project that Sufjan Stevens was supposedly going to do, and this album was the first part of it. Uh, Turns out that was completely a marketing gimmick. (laughs) Yeah, he did not make it. In point of fact, uh, the Mountain Goats have more albums about States than Sufjan Stevens ever made. (laughs) Yes, and it was intentional because... Apparently, so he grew up in Michigan. He went to a Waldorf school for special little boys. Uh, And he is a special little boy. (laughs) In Detroit. But yeah, apparently he couldn't read 
like at all or very well. And his family was like his fa- He grew up in kind of like a hippie Christian family, and I think that's part of where his name comes from. His name is Armenian, I think. Sudge fan Stevens. <laughs> it means comes with a sword. Yeah. And it was given to Stevens by the founder of Subud, an interface spiritual community to which his parents belonged when he was born. So, yeah, they're kind of hippie Christian types. And then he ended up moving after the Waldorf School in Detroit to Allenson, Michigan, which is like pretty rural and in northern Michigan. Uh huh. I saw an old interview and I just want to read this because I'm sure it'll contribute further to your hate of this guy. <laughs> Can't wait. So in the beginning of third grade, I was transferred to a public school, a cinder block prison camp with metal lockers and industrial carpeting and fluorescent lights so severe that they took out all the color out of your complexion. The other children, raised on hot dogs and homogenized milk, were pig-nosed, buck-tooth albino bullies who spent their free time at the arcade downtown playing Dig Dug or Dungeons and Dragons. I, yeah, no, I I hate them so much. This is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) so yeah that's so condescending then he ended up going to hope college which is in holland mission i uh uh, holland mission holland michigan and it's kind of like a christian liberal arts school i actually knew a couple of people from my high school who went there he also i only mentioned this because like uh you know when i went to oberlin like so many people were like oh i went to this fucking this thing called Interlochen Arts Academy, which is in Michigan, but it's like an arts program for like special little <laughs> people. And all like, it felt like everyone that I knew at Oberlin, like, oh my God, we all went to Interlochen. And I, I just like hated them <laughs> and resented them for that. <laughs> so I have to admit, uh, it didn't contribute to my uh, love of Sufjan, but he was like a multi-instrumentalist. And then he ended up moving to New York to go to the new school and he wanted to write he wanted to be a writer but eventually decided to make music and he formed a record label with his stepdad called asthmatic kitty uh-huh and his first album was called a sun came from 1999 have you heard either of his first two albums before uh yeah i heard the the rabbit one enjoy your rabbit yeah that was his next album yeah, but I I never heard a sun came. Was was is that any good? It sounds like other Sufjan Stevens material. It's just more lo-fi. It kind of I I don't think his style had like quite gelled into a specific form. Like there's some kind of different genres and styles being explored, but the the general like thing that he does is there. You know, got it. Even down to the ASMR vocal recording. <laughs> of course, beautiful. Does it feel like I was thinking about this today? There was a weird Christian indie thing that was also happening in the early aughts. Oh yeah, he was he was part of the Danielson family or Danielson familial, yeah, however you pronounce it. The Danielson, a better band, if you ask me. <laughs> but both eccentric Christian indie artists, you know, and then uh, you know, Pedro the Lion was still around. Like it's Yeah, and of course we had Lowe as well. Oh, yeah, I forget that lover, ostensibly. (laughs) R.I.P. Mimi Parker. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah, uh, it'll be fun to do low in a a little while. Yeah. But but it was was weird. It felt weird that that was happening. (laughs) Yeah, well, I don't know. I guess it makes sense in a way because contemporary Christian music 
especially at the time with like Creed and stuff was just like <laughs> dire. It was dire, but it was huge. Like contemporary Christian music was the like that's when people were starting to really mock it with like Saved and you know that one South Park episode. Whenever I see Jesus up on that cross, I can't help but think that it looks kind of high. It was deeply bad and generic, but Christianity had kind of a weird fad in the early aughts. It was cool for a second. Well, and maybe, I don't know, maybe artists like Jars of Clay or, or artists like that that were kind of vaguely alternative, but also Christian. Jars of Clay, your DC Talks, your MXPXs. They might have like built audiences for, you know, slightly alternative Christian music. So that could be part of it. Yeah, yeah. Anyways. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. <laughs> But yeah, uh, his next album was Enjoy Your Rabbit, and it's mostly instrumentals, I think. Yeah. And it's very, like, proggy, very kind of maximalist, kind of unsurprising given albums like The Age of Odds. Yeah, it's definitely a more electronic vibe to it. Wikipedia describes it as, like, IDM, which it is not. (laughs) Uh, You know, it is insofar as IDM can mean anything if you want it to. Yeah, I suppose. It actually makes me think of like, you know, that first Broken Social Scene album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Feel Good Lost, for sure. For sure. How they went from like adventurous, multi-instrumental kind of things to combining that with like a more pop sensibility. like definitely a very skilled musician plays a lot of different instruments records his own stuff but he wasn't popular at all he wasn't getting anywhere in 2002 and apparently what happened was his manager daniel gill was trying to help him get promoted basically he was 27 at the time and he had two albums that came out you know he's part of danielson family Mm -hmm. but he didn't really get anywhere and so he said that he was working on two albums at the same time, one about Michigan, which he wrote on piano mostly, and another that he wrote on banjo, which was a Christ, more of a Christian album, and that was Seven Swans, uh, which is what he released after. And the guys like uh, Daniel Gill was like, okay, you're doing a concept album about Michigan. Why don't we just say in the a press announcement that you're going to do an album about all 50 states? And it worked. And he's like, okay, yeah. But yeah, apparently he had zero intention to do that. He did have an intention to make an Illinois album, so that kind of lended something to it. But yeah, he kind of maintained kayfabe with that for a little while before eventually just saying it was a gimmick. Yeah. And again, you know, it worked. It goes to show how how good a gimmick in your press release can do with with internet journalism. See also Jack White's, uh, the, the White Stripes' whole are we married or are we siblings thing. I mean, Boards of Canada, like, I, I don't know, yeah. like any kind of thing where it's like, oh, it's a mystery who this person is. So apparently when this album was first reviewed, uh, this is interesting, Pitchfork reviewed it and supposedly according to this article, so I'm getting this from an article about the Sufjan Stevens 50 states in uh, The Ringer from 2019 by Zach 
Schoenfeld, Schoenfeld, sorry if I mispronounced it. And there's some like dispute on this. So Aaron Gill claims that Pitchfork originally gave this album a 7.5 and it wasn't best new music. And he was like actively trying to encourage Ryan Schreiber to listen to it because he knew that Ryan Schreiber hadn't listened to the album. I think uh-huh. he might have said it on the website or something. And then so he did. So Ryan did. And he was like, oh, I can't believe we gave this album a 7.5. However, Ryan Schreiber said that the original review was deleted mostly. So Gil said that he deleted the original review, reassigned it to somebody else and gave it a more glowing endorsement and a best new music Mm -hmm. with an 8.5 score. But Schreiber says that he simply like republished the same review and tweaked the score and like the review was slightly different. And this article claims that there isn't a version of the original review on archive.org, but there actually is. Oh. As far as I can tell, it is very similar to the later review, and it's by the same author, and it's an 8.3 instead of an 8.5. So this must be the original review, because they did change the score later, but it's not Best New Music. That's such a small change. I guess it was just enough to like bump it up to best new music, but it means that uh, this other guy was wrong and Ryan Schreiber was right. <laughs> so, which I I didn't want to give Ryan Schreiber credit, but yeah. And and Ryan Schreiber is still wrong about a lot of things, including the quality of this album. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So the reviewer is Brandon Stosi. Is I don't know how to pronounce. I actually it. have never known how to pronounce his name either, and we have mutuals, so I'm very sorry. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. He has done a lot of reviews for Pitchfork over the years. Mm -hmm. I think his last one was in 2018. But yeah, do you want to read part of the review? Sure. Okay. The first thing to know about Greetings from Michigan, the third album from Brooklyn-based singer-songwriter Sufjan Stevens, is that his creator was born there. Few albums more clearly evoke their namesake. Towering pines, highways paved through granite walls, great lakes and deep valleys resonate in its gentle piano muted trumpets, and close-miked production, which is particularly odd given that Stevens' home city is Detroit. It leads you to wonder how one could craft an album so delicate from an inspiration its author calls a monstrous concrete prison which has been destroyed by its infidelity. (laughs) Certainly the album is run through with a wistful melancholia with lyrics that reference the city's dead machinery and empty warehouses. But there's a reason the album's title greets its listeners from the state and not the city. The record is a beautiful, sprawling homage to the self-described pleasant peninsula. Honestly, I think we we might be good there. I feel like that that encapsulates. Yeah, there's some stuff later on that he brings up that I think is a good point, which is that a lot of these songs go on a little too long and about the sort of Philip Glass style of arranging it. But we can get into that when we actually talk about the album. Yeah, the review is fine. There's nothing much to say about it. It's weird. It's a 2003 Pitchfork review that feels like it could be written today. It's very lyrically focused and very normal. And yeah, even the original version of this review that I saw archived uh, is pretty much the same. It just begins differently. It, it talks about if Philip Glass admitted to writing pop songs in the guise of new music, then perhaps he'd grow addicted to ever more slippery sugar and develop a series of densely rendered hooks akin to those parsed by Sufjan Stevens on Michigan. It just begins that way. But I think that part is later in the article. So yeah, they just kind of changed around some things. It's just weird because completely different from the story that's being told by the PR person on that article. 
who called it like a mediocre review, even though it's basically the same review, just made slightly more. They changed from an 8.3 to an 8.5. But regardless, that's Michigan. This album is like 66 fucking minutes long. <laughs> it's so long. Some of these songs are like eight, nine minutes long. We'll get into it. The Philip Glass influence, I think, is well considered because there is sort of a Glass or, or Reich quality to a lot of these songs where they just kind of repeat gently upon themselves and occasionally the instrumentation changes but it will it will go on often forever i noticed especially in some of the longer songs that we'll talk about like the the structure is almost like electronic dance music it's very elliptical it's it's very loopy it's like how there's like different just layers being added and it kind of repeats the same thing but there's like an you know an indie folk packaging on it like diy packaging on it it's kind of interesting, but... It's, uh, it's DIY in the same way that O Inverted World was. Like, it was all recorded on Pro Tools and shit. Which is the other thing that's interesting to talk about. Because, again, it, it is a complete encapsulation of, like, the change from, you know, lo-fi indie music of the 90s. To, to mid-fi. <laughs> to mid-fi, like, self-recorded music that still sounds pretty good is pretty well recorded and still using fairly minimal means but somehow he had access to all these fucking instruments Mm -hmm. now i i don't want (laughs) to i don't know just reading through like some more things about it it's like i have to realize that living costs were much cheaper in the early 2000s and late 90s yeah because it's important to realize that because otherwise it's like how did one person do this how did he have access to all these instruments like you know it's a little it's not something you would observe as much uh today let's say absolutely not well and it's not like he came from poverty or anything but like no it doesn't seem like he came from a super rich family it seems like they were kind of all over the place financially we'll say but i think one of the interesting things about this diy digital mid-fi thing is one bit of credit i'll give to the album i think it sounds a lot better than O inverted world oh it sounds yeah a lot more carefully considered and like it is mixed in such a way that all of the elements are distinct and whole you know, you can. There's a lot of texture on the instruments. I think the review mentions it being very closely mic'd, and, and you can tell. Um, like it's a very good sounding record, all things considered. Yeah, it's. It really seems like Sufjan Stevens had more experience just recording and engineering records, so mm-hmm. knew more about that. He was. It, it's kind of more akin to the Broken Social Scene album, you know, because yeah. they had played in a lot of bands. They had a lot more. You know, they had honed their skills for years. And I think that shows in that album. And I think it shows like his experience self-recording in this album, because again, this is something that I associate so strongly with him is like what I just call like the the shimmery ASMR vocals. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're mixed with like the high frequencies boosted, like really high up, I guess. Yeah, you can feel the crack, the crackle. (laughs) I used to like wonder how he did it and like, you know, really like wish I could get that sound when I was younger. Apparently, he also recorded at a sampling rate of 32 kilohertz, which is lower than usual. And then he like, I I don't know what that means. Maybe that added like a slightly different sound or something. But yeah, anyway. Yeah, I'll I'll be honest. uh, I've never understood bitrate. (laughs) Yeah, I I think 30, like the kilohertz, it it like cuts off the higher range, basically, Um, the lower it is. Usually it's like 44 kilohertz. Sometimes it's like 88 or whatever is the standard. 
So I think the further you go down, the more it cuts off like a certain range. But I don't know what that means with regards to like the sound, you know? Right. But yeah. Oh, the album art uh, apparently features hand paintings by Martha Stewart Living Crafts editor Laura Normandon. <laughs> and you can tell it's got that high quality graphic design you'd expect from Martha Stewart. Yeah. I think I was more receptive to this kind of indie kitsch than you were at the time because it feels like the the legacy of Neutral Milk Hotel was like so strong <laughs> in various ways. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I get it. Like it's got like a tourism pamphlet vibe and if that's what you're you're trying to do then it accomplishes that. It just feels like it has a specific vision and I I don't know, maybe to me it, I just like wasn't super invested in like hard rock music by that point i was starting to get more interested in more like ornate detailed kind of higher concept things like with olivia tremor control right. or whatever obviously kid a so albums like this or the broken social scene album like appeal to me a lot because they kind of scratch that itch a little bit i could see that although i feel like Olivia Tremor Control's approach is so much more textured and idiosyncratic. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Broken Social Scene or Sufjan Stevens is as good as those previous things, but it it's kind of like the more presentable version in some ways of, of like... It, it has a similar... It's ambitious, if not as boundary pushing. Yeah, I think it was more poised to be like, not just because of Pitchfork or whatever but also just because the recording quality. It's aggressively pleasant. <laughs> those kinds of albums are more poised to get the attention that they did. And like, yeah, once, I mean, once the Pitchfork review took off, like he became more and more popular. And obviously he really broke out with Illinois. Like that album was so was huge. huge. Yeah. Whereas this one was, I don't know, supposedly by 2000. Five, it had sold 27,000 copies, which doesn't sound that much. No, everyone I, I know who owns it got it after Illinois came out. I mean, that's, I heard it after Illinois came out. Oh, so I'm I'm like one of the only people who, who actually heard it when it came out, or at least the songs. Yeah, because I, I remember reading the review, but we'll get into this. I don't typically like this kind of folk music. I find it kind of dull and unaffecting. So when I saw that label, I was like, ah, I'm not interested. This is like somewhat contemporary and or pre-freak folk, which I was more into and which aged worse, I would argue. I mean, uh, there there are certain artists that are really... Obviously, if you can include like Joanna Newsom as freak oh, folk. Oh, absolutely. Or... I, Joanna Newsom, there's some Devender Banhart stuff I still like, but like a, a vetiver, I don't think holds up very well. Oh, yeah. I suppose you're right. But... Uh, you know what I also got from like uh, Enjoy Your Rabbit a little bit was like, uh, you know, the band Anita? Yeah, 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 yeah. Kind of that like jammy, slightly spiritual hippie. You know what I mean? Yeah, I could, I could totally see that. It, it also, God, I just had a band that it reminded me of and I completely lost it. But Oneida for sure. Although, I, again, I would argue Oneida is a little more interesting. But there, there was like a, a sort of, indie electronica thing going on as well you know broadcast was around the same time like it was a thing um so i you can kind of see where where enjoy your rabbit comes from yeah Menomina is also like an indie Menomina, that's what i was thinking of thank you thank you god Menomina, yeah. yes especially that first Menomina album which was like entirely based around 
Yeah. And that's one of the other few albums that I heard a song from at the time because it was on Best New Music in 2003. So, mm-hmm. uh, okay, we can talk about the album now. So let's begin. Yeah. Track one, Flint for the Unemployed and Underpaid. Something, I think the lyrics on this album are terrible almost exclusively. And it starts with this song, which feels very cloying. Yeah, so it starts off kind of a, a slow piano much more downbeat which it's kind of the thesis statement what you'd expect for the rest of the album yeah this album was apparently written on piano i kind of like the just the first chord it's like a diminished chord or something Mm -hmm. it adds like a little bit of tension and i think it's a little bit more sad feeling than some of the other stuff a little bit more ambiguous and like uh so i i personally think it's a good opening for this album but it's the same Outside, driving to the riverside, I pretend to cry, even if I cried alone. I I mean, so part of it, and I'll talk about it more with the next song, is that, again, fundamentally, there's something in the way that Sufjan Stevens writes melodies that I find unsatisfying and off-putting. But in this song, I'm with you. I think it's quarterly interesting. The lyrics feel really kind of dumb to me. I don't know. They're simplistic to the point of being kind of infantile. Yeah, it's true. Um, These are the lyrics. It's the same outside, driving to the riverside. I pretend to cry, even if I cried alone. Drinking game for how many times uh, the word cry or crying is mentioned in a Sufjan Stevens song. Oh, he's a crier. He's a crier. (laughs) Or someone who pretends to cry, at least. Right. I forgot the start. Use my hands to use my heart, even if I died alone. Yeah. And then there's a line about lost my job and lost my room. Since the 1st of June. Yeah. Yeah, I just... Yeah, it's not subtle. It's not subtle, and it feels idiotic to me. In the same way that like when the Flaming Lips try to write about political topics, they sound like children. That's how I feel with when Suffy and Stevens tries to be political. <laughs> I mean, there's this kind of like twee naivete that is like, you know, interested in the wonder of the universe and all that kind of stuff, which... I think appealed to me more at one point. Well, I also think when, say, the Flaming Lips are focusing on the universe and like these sort of grander human ideas, then it works. It's a style that works. But when you're talking about Flint, Michigan, it feels cloying to me. Yeah, I don't really know what the song has to do with Flint, like based on the lyrics. Outside of the unemployment thing. I mean, yeah, I think that's it. The next song is part of what I mean when I say this is a Charlie Brown-ass album. Well, we'll get to that in a second. I just also wanted to mention the fucking Neutral Milk Hotel horns. Yes. (laughs) Which, the horns, this is the first thing, the way these horns are arranged bother me because they they just escalate. They never resolve. It's just a scale. It's just a scale. Yeah. It's so dumb. And a lot of the arrangements in this do that. They're not interesting. They're like the most basic thing you could possibly do.
Well, I think you're right about the Philip Glass thing in that it feels almost time stretched, you know? Yeah, but even like Philip Glass is playing with more interesting melodic concepts than an ascending scale. Even just do a mode, anything. It's, I don't know. I like the main melody line in this a little more than some of the other songs. I could take or leave the two female vocalists who come throughout the album. Like some of their contributions are really help the songs. And sometimes I feel like they hurt the songs and make it feel kitschy. Yeah, I I think part of that is like how the harmonies are arranged. Like sometimes. Yeah, I think it it is the arrangement that is the cause of that mostly. Because the voices are good and they blend well. It's just like, is it a harmony that adds or a harmony that feels easy, for lack of a better word? But I don't know. I, I like the first song. I see what you mean about the lyrics. But the next track is All Good Naysayers, Speak Up or Forever Hold Your Peace. Now, this is one of them that I downloaded when I first, you know, in 2003. And I actually really liked the song. Weirdly, it reminded me, maybe just because of the vibraphones and stuff, but it reminded me of Stereolab, who I Well, liked. it's also repetitive in a way that's like repetitive and building in a way that a lot of uh, Stereolab songs do. This is, again, one of those songs which I feel like I should like, but it is Sufjan's songwriting style, like fundamentally, it's, it's impossible to explain. I can't tell you why it's bad, I just don't like it. I think I know what you mean, and maybe I'll try to explain it Like as we go on. It, this is like part of what I consider, like there are about three songs that fit in this that all kind of sound like part of the same thing in this album, and this is the first one. Mm-hmm. And it's also in like 5-4, which adds like kind of an interesting tension, but like that tension is like the entire song. Right. Which... I think that's part of it. Like the sort of rhythmic pattern, it's interesting, but it's not like always developed in a way that like feels like it gets the most out of it. I think the, I feel like the arranger brain is like kind of superseding the, the melodic writer brain in some of these where it just goes on too long. And it's like, you just need to cut it down because what it's doing from a melodic perspective isn't, like interesting enough and i don't think like i think this song it works pretty well because it's shorter than some of the later ones absolutely uh, where i'd make that complaint more absolutely it is but i I think the reason why i kind of like this album and it, it seems to stick out at least more than some of his earlier albums is he's at least really trying to combine the melodic side the kind of melancholy side with something that is more ambitious and and layered but still have it feel kind of a little bit downbeat and a little bit like sort of homey or whatever and i feel like this kind of sound has become a cliche it's like you know garden state ish uh you know like twee indie diy i i don't know little miss sunshine etc cetera, etc cetera. like i i definitely associate it as being part of that or like the owl city kind of thing where it's like oh no <laughs> You know, you have all these like old machines running and it's like, ooh, right, 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 right. I mean, something he said that I think partially gets at the core of this is the idea of a ranger brain taking over songwriter brain. I love arrangement. Like it's when I'm writing songs, it's what I get deeply into. But like they have to do something. And I feel like when he thinks of an arrangement, what he thinks of is a texture and then puts the most basic melodic line on it. Like. I want the texture of horns or I want the texture of banjo or strings. So I'm going to put that in there. But instead of writing a distinct part for them, I will just give them a harmony that works so that they're in there. 
Well, I think it would work okay if he didn't return to the same thing so many times for me. Because like the first time I hear it, I like it, but it's like some of the later songs, again, don't get as much out of that for me. But I feel like there's a place for it. And I mean, even listening to this song, I still really like it because... He does a lot of subtle things in the arrangement, you know, like the bass line comes in when he starts singing. I don't know, like there's a a nice like guitar lick that feels very like 70s Fleetwood Mac, which there's like kind of a 70s Fleetwood Mac guitar thing going on throughout this album. Mm -hmm. And like there's some interesting textures that you don't notice, which is like it kind of goes back to the thing of like a lot of this music kind of being headphone music of the early 2000s and that being like a, a big part of the appeal is you can really start to hear the textures but it feels more like intimate in a way that like a lot of mainstream music didn't at all at this time so i don't know for sure it is satisfying to listen to on headphones because again like you're talking about the mixing really preserves the texture of like the fingers on strings or like the wind blowing through the instruments you know it it feels tactile conveys this kind of snowy rural feeling of Michigan. I mean, I as someone who grew up in rural Ohio, place where it can be very isolating and cold, uh, especially during the winter, like, I guess I relate to that. I don't know, that sound feels closer to, you know, especially when I was in high school, felt closer to a lot of other things and really capturing how I felt like that place was. And, you know, like for me, Growing up, it felt like so little culturally captured at all, like things that I could relate to. I mean, it's part of why I hated so much of the like New York music. So this is because this is your lonesome crowded West. (laughs) Not quite, but like, you know, like there's an element of that there. No, for sure. I I get that. That makes sense. It does feel very (laughs) Michigan-y. Yeah. Uh, there isn't really much to say about it. A- again, a lot of this stuff is layered like electronic music. There's like an oboe that... It, it is a, li- a little bit Olivia Tremor controlly in the in the feeling, but like, you know, doesn't go as far out there as that or anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we got some all good thoughts in spite of righteousness is not the kinds of thoughts in spite of greatness. Often not the state is advocation if we form a power of recognition. Speaking of the shins, this feels shins as shit. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, just kind of like a lot of words that sound like each other, like a lot of wordplay. Yeah, it's so awkward. It's a little bit like clever writer boy. (laughs) But what is it saying? (laughs) Often not the state is advocation if we form a... What? All good thoughts. That's Yoda speak. Well, it's like... 
it, it's like the kind of old timey history thing where they're kind of imitating the cadence of like how people used to talk and write yeah. in like the 19th century or 18th century, which like I think because so much like culturally, I think of the early 2000s, like post 9-11 period is kind of being about escape you know, trying to disassociate yourself for, from the moment. I think it helped this kind of historical pop, <laughs> like in the way like Decemberist did, because it's like people didn't want to be actually occupying the moment and thinking about it because it stressed them out too much. They didn't want to be reminded of it. Right. Which, you know, there's something kind of reactionary about that, obviously. Yeah. I don't know. I can, I can see where you're coming from. It, it does just sound silly, though. <laughs> There isn't much else to say. I mean, it really feels arranged like electronic dance music. Yeah, and it's it's something that will come much more to the fore on the other songs that sound like this that are significantly longer. Yeah. Okay, so the next song is For the Windows in Paradise for the Fatherless in uh, Ypsilanti. This is maybe my favorite of the first few songs. Okay. I actually really like the banjo texture in his songs. I feel like it adds something. Some of his songs on uh, Seven Swans, I feel like convey that pretty well. Some of them that use the banjo. I know it's like such a fucking hack uh, indie folk kid thing. To, Although to... I, it kind of became hack because of Sufjan, so. Yeah, and a few other people. I mean, it's the, you know, the fucking Will Oldhams of the universe. Oh God, we're gonna have to cover Will Oldham eventually, aren't we? Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> I think the melody of this this song is good, like especially the beginning where he says, I have called you children, I have called you son. What if there's to answer if I'm the only one? I don't know. It's a good it's a good like melodic line. I feel like it's stronger than a lot of the other ones. I have called you children. I will say I don't hate this song, which is actually a big deal on this album where I hate most of it. <laughs> and I think part of that is that it, it feels kind of like a normal song. Yeah. It's a pretty normal folk song. I, I agree. I think the banjo sounds good. I like banjo. And we do have boring horn lines again. Just so dull, just so pointless and dull. But they feel more backgrounded than they did on um, Flint. Yeah. It's such like that that song, Where You'll Find Me Now. Is that what it's called? The Neutral Milk Hotel song? Mm -hmm. Like on their first album that there's a brass line that goes. And it feels like that is like every every like brass line on this album. Yeah. No, I get what you mean.
don't know. It's just it's hard to ignore the neutral milk hotel influence on like so much of this stuff for me. Um, yeah, it feels so neutered, ironically, compared to Neutral Milk Hotel. <laughs> well, yeah, Neutral Milk Hotel is kind of unnerving. <laughs> like Neutral Milk Hotel, I could see that influence much more in Danielson Famille, mm-hmm. which is a lot more chaotic uh, than Sufjan usually allows himself to be. Like Danielson Famille is closer to Frog Eyes than Sufjan in a lot of ways. Yeah, it goes back to the like idea of like a chaotic musical collective thing, which was very big at this time. Right. You know, obviously broken social scene. Arcade Fire. Danielson Family. Yeah. Arcade Fire. Fucking even polyphonic spree like later. Especially polyphonic spree. <laughs> yeah. Dallas, Dallas Heroes, hometown heroes. And I mean, the Elephant Six, obviously. Right. So, yeah. But, yeah, you know, I think it's one of the least compositionally interesting songs on the album, but I think that's good for it. Yeah. Because at heart, I think Sophie and Stevens is capable, in later albums, accomplishes this, of writing, like, affecting folk songs. But I don't know if he's a good composer. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, I I think the arrangement and the textures are really what carry it for me. Mm -hmm. But I do agree that there's like a lack of variety in terms of timbres or or whatever. I like the um, genius says, a song about love, death, Jesus? Jesus? (laughs) Uh. Sufjan Stevens says, there's a small town up here called Paradise, Michigan. And Michigan has paradise as well as hell, Michigan. It's kind of interesting. And Paradise is a place, I noticed when we went up there to play football tournament in high school, I noticed that there were all these single mothers and women and grandmothers, but there weren't any men. And so I sort of devised the story in my mind that they all had died in the war and they were all widows. You can tell. (laughs) It all comes through in the song. Yeah, that that is like kind of a weird recurring theme. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the next song, Say Yes to Michigan with a exclamation point substituted for the eyes in Michigan. This is the other thing about Sophie and I find insufferable are his titles, yeah. which are like, if Fallout Boy were the town crier, they would write song titles like this. It's just a lot of excess verbiage and exclamation points. This is one of my least favorite songs on this album. Mine, too. The moment it comes on, it makes my skin crawl. (laughs) Something about the way, like when he says, uh, still, I never meant to go away. I was raised. I was raised in the place. Still, I often think of going back to the farms, to the farms. When, like, the the backup singers are singing it, it just, it sounds so kitschy to me. Like, yes. Both in the lyrics in terms, he's like, oh, I think of going back to the farms and, like, your golden arms, you know? Yeah. And, like, oh, still, I know... What to wear on my back? Michigan, Ponchuang, Cadillac. And it's like, come on, man. That's corny. It feels designed to annoy me, this song. <laughs> like, it's all the things I dislike about Sofiane Stevens in one song. Still I know what to wear on my back. Michigan, Ponchuang, Cadillac. If I ever meant to go away, I was raised, I was raised. The 
the melody isn't interesting either, especially the still. I never meant to go away. I was raised. You know, it's just. Uh, it w- it's very cloying and it's uh, it feels like something you'd hear in a cakewalk or I don't know. It's it's so. Yeah, I kind of like the, the piano riff, but it's too similar to a lot of the other piano riffs. The kind of rolling piano of the do 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 I don't know. The textures are nice, but it, it just doesn't work for me. <laughs> I think it's the best song to get at. What I mean when I say fundamentally the way Sufjan often writes melodies is appalling to me. Um, like this is the, definitely the worst situation, but it gets at some of the like a lot of his vocal melodies, a lot of his arrangements just don't just just make me unhappy, <laughs> <laughs> which is irrational. And I realize it's not like a good critique of music. It's a very personal one, but mm-hmm. it is how I feel. Yeah, I feel like I like the, the texture of the arrangements a lot more than you. But f- with that one, it just feels like it kind of is worse where it feels like someone is trying too hard to like throw coats of paint on something and it's just making it worse, you know? Yeah, it's a chirpy glob of paint. And there's just too much of that, I think. But blessedly, it's pretty short. It's one of the shortest songs on the album, which I think is good. Um, and it makes it not bother me as much as it could but yeah the next song is the upper peninsula so i do actually like this song quite a bit this this song and i hate to be this person as the died in the wool interpol liker of the two of us this is one where the lyrics really throw me off i live in america with a pair of payless shoes the upper peninsula and the television news Uh, yeah and i've seen my wife at the kmart like it's just it makes me annoyed like deeply annoyed. This makes me appreciate Isaac Brock's lyrics way more, <laughs> to be honest. I was gonna say, yeah, this feels like the antithesis of those. Yeah, as someone from Michigan, he's kind of treating Michigan as like a weird tourist. You know what I mean? Yeah, it feels really condescending. Like I feel like he's looking at these working class people and is being really pitying in a way. Which given the quote from him yeah. that I read earlier as uh, an interesting component to that. It certainly does. And it, it kind of bums me out. It, we've talked about this. It's so rare that like lyrics are enough to pull me out of a song. And usually they have to be like dumb is not enough or weird is not enough. They have to actively annoy me mm-hmm. to pull me out. And this is an example of that. Like it makes me want to hit him. Fair. I don't know. I like the texture of the song. But I, I, I actually, this is melodically, this is a song that I think is up there with, uh, with Ypsilanti for me. It's just the lyrics are very difficult for me. I think he's a good musician. Like, I like the guitar playing. It has that, like, 70s burnout music, <laughs> kind of like, <laughs> you know what I mean, like Fleetwood Mac or, or, like, some of, like, the more burned out, like, On the Beach, Neil Young or something like that. My wife and the 
It's definitely one of the more guitar focused on the album, which is kind of a neat texture to pull in, especially at this point. Even the drums kind of have this a 70s like kit feeling to them. I don't know. I feel like we really underrate how much 70s nostalgia there was happening in the 2000s with indie music because it's it's kind of everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I like the song. You're right. The lyrics are bad. There's kind of a nonsense guitar solo, which is a different texture for him. So even though it's not a great solo, I kind of like it. Yeah, I think, again, like, it's such a big deal when any song musically on this album stands out. And so for that, it is refreshing, especially before Takwa, Takwa uh, this this very long song. Uh, well, no, we have this song is short. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I got I got that confused with <laughs> um, uh, one of the later songs. No, Takwa, actually, this is maybe my favorite song on the album. <laughs> it's a nice little instrumental, uh, extremely reminiscent of the Bjork instrumental Frosty. <laughs> So it's extremely similar. Absolutely. And to be sure, it's less interesting because it doesn't actually move anywhere. It's just texture. It's just pure texture. But as we've described, he's really good at texture. Yeah. It actually feels a little bit more like Enjoy Your Rabbit than anything else on the album. Yeah. It's really just a transitional thing, but I do like, I mean, as a teenager, I really like the glockenspiel, vibraphone, xylophone thing. So especially vibraphone. Me too. Because, you know, like out of Stereo Lab, use them. It's, you know, the like shubiyaki kind of music that like mm -hmm. Tortoise was using it a lot too. So I imagine that was. Are you a Tortoise fan? I did listen to Tortoise in high school. I liked them decently. You know, I like the texture. I was a big tortoise hater in high school, and I, I've since come around a bit more, but... I'm not a tortoise lover, but I do like some <laughs> of their stuff. For sure. No, I, I'm with you. I, I also like that hide. It makes me think of also, like, um, Bells for Her, the Tori Amos song. Oh, yeah, yeah. A great song. Don't make me think of a better song, though. Oh, <laughs> uh, can you imagine if you were talking about Under the Pink right now instead? Uh, yeah, we can't stop what's coming, though. We can't stop no, what is on its, its way. It's on its way. <laughs> the next song is Holland. And Holland is the town where, of course, Hope College is, um, where he went to school. Mm -hmm. I like this song. It actually sounds like a lot of the songs on Seven Swans. It, it's way more downbeat and just even the, the vocal line. There's a little more like ambiguity in the guitar part that I like. I don't know. It feels a little more haunting and like a little more ambiguous and it doesn't go as overboard with the like arrangement and production. So I, I feel like the song works pretty well. I could kind of see that at this point, it's sort of diminishing returns for me on this style of song. But again, that's my subjective hatred of certain kinds of indie folk. <laughs> Fair enough. Summer heat, I might. 
Apparently this is like a love song he had about somebody that he used to date and he has a whole story about it. You can look <laughs> look it up on Genius. They have, it's a little much to be honest. I'm we sure. sewed shirts for our friends with decorative borders made from ribbons with zippers, with billowing collars, with floral patterns. Nothing fit right. We went around shirtless, even the skinny ones, even the fat ones, even the ones with terrific arms and shoulders. Uh, yeah, you get the idea. He's so gay. <laughs> he's like the gayest straight person. Yeah, I know. He's the definition of cottage core. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's stuff you had in a nutshell. Okay, but that's Holland. Not as good a Holland as Neutral Milk Hotels, to be fair. Oh, yeah. I like at the end where he's where there's a harmony goes... And there's like a, a minor sort of core. I don't know. It's a little bit more spooky. Reminds me of the song Abraham from his next album, which I think is one of my favorite of his because it's like very, very minimal and I feel like it works. Mm-hmm. And I do, the thing with his vocals is I do think his delivery, like even when the lyrics aren't good, it conveys a feeling to me really well in a way that, you know, the lead singer from Interpol does not for for me. No, Safia could reasonably convince you these are better lyrics than they are because he puts an emotional to me that makes them worse uh because it feels like oh you really you really believe these lyrics whereas like with Interpol I'm like I bet you can't believe you're saying the shit you're saying but whereas Safia feels very genuine genuine about lyrics that are very bad that said we have Detroit lift up your weary head rebuild restore reconsider yeah not a great I don't like that title. No, but this song is notable for its support of trans people with the line public trans, public trans, public <laughs> trans. Oh, yes. Oh, man. Yeah, this feels very touristy again. Like it's it's chir- It's similarly chirpy to me. I do like the it has a tempo. I think it's nine eight is like kind of vaguely what the tempo is. The bump, but a bump, but um, but a da 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 bump, but um, bump, but um, but. Like all good naysayers, which this is basically a sequel to. Yes. It kind of really relies on that. For eight minutes. But in the middle, there's a breakdown and the drumming changes. And I actually really like the drums. And the tempo sort of changes and it changes into like a 4-4, which I think is interesting. And I don't know, adds an interesting texture in it. I, I feel like there's a lot done with this arrangement and texturally to keep me interested, whereas that's not the case with some of the longer songs later on in the album. Yeah, I feel like melodically it just doesn't develop enough. Like, I get what you mean. It is a bit more rhythmically and arrangementally diverse as it goes on. It feels closer to the electronic music that you're talking about, but the melody doesn't work well for me and it doesn't change for eight minutes. Well, there's the, the from the trembling walls, it's a great idea, everything. Wow, I have like the same range of voice as this guy. Oh my God, please start <laughs> singing with better lyrics than him. <laughs> oh, cause yeah. But yeah, I like that. I like that part, I don't know. From the trembling walls, it's a great idea. Everything you want, it's a great idea. From the round of it's a great idea. 
but but there is stuff like oh Windsor Park, Windsor Park, Saginaw, Saginaw, Tiger's Game, Tiger. It's like okay. It reminds me of on Illinois the predatory wasps of the Palisades or, or whatever that song is called, mm. where it is similarly repetitive, <laughs> deeply repetitive. It feels a little like, I don't want to incorrectly use the term, but a little manic where Sufjan Stevens is like, okay, what can I put here? What's Detroit? You know, like, right. oh, what are, what are all these things? Like, let's write down a list. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like. It, it almost, it feels kind of precious to me. It's almost Disneyfied a little bit. Yeah. A Disneyfied version of Detroit that's just like, here are, here, it's a small world after all. There's Henry Ford. There's the Pontiac. I think he would probably say that that's what he's going for. Like, it, it is kind of like this tourist ad version of it. I think if we asked him, he would probably say that as a... Oh, sure. But if accomplishing what you're going for doesn't excuse the fact that what you're going for, it kind of sucks. Yeah. Oh, here's something in the liner notes uh, from the liner notes, the album that is very revealing by Sufjan. He says... Oh, Detroit, when you are dead and gone, who will care for your children's children? They will have run wild with the bastard boys around the streets, reckless car rides downtown, rigorous dancing, drug taking, knife stabbing, pillow stuffing, tail wagging restlessness. They have been drunk with this for years. They have been out of their minds. They have been left with nothing. I'm glad uh, What's-His-Face makes so much fun of Safian. <laughs> the Sufjan Stevens startled by Kate Bush video the Chris Fleming Chris Fleming thank you he has it coming yeah I have to put in a clip of that please she startled me with the party debris what do you mean he got spooked Sufjan Stevens he's watching the Kate Bush video which Kate Bush video not the one where she throws glitter at the camera in the end oh I, I don't know maybe you know he can't see that Sufjan Stevens how am I supposed to know that I don't know I got him could you come out from under the bed? Come on. What Kate Bush did was mean. Kate Bush was mean when she startled me. She threw the party debris at me. Why? Look, that's just a video. It's not directed at you. Startled and alone. <laughs> he got scared by Kate Bush throwing glitter at the camera. I that's, that's the thing. It's like, so I don't love Chris Fleming and I don't necessarily love that sketch, except listening to this album, Randy, that his parody of Sufjan Stevens is actually very close. Yeah, <laughs> he does a pretty good job. So there's also the famous, we have to mention the MTV other music sketch, the like human giant one. Oh, yeah. With the guy from our <laughs> podcast logo, this woman picks up uh, a Sufjan Stevens album. He's like, you like that? Such fan? Stevens. Yeah, he's, he's okay. Yeah, he's a buddy of mine. Oh, really? Yeah, I think we used to be in a band together or something. Maybe and then, yeah. You know, that's actually a great album. Pitchfork Media said that was the best album of 2005. <laughs> I don't even know what Pitchfork Media is. Ow! Get the hell out of our store, please. <laughs> And the guy says the immortal line, which I think of every time I think of Sufjan Stevens. He says, When I tell such fan about this, he's going to insult you. <laughs> God, Human Giant was so good. <laughs> yeah, I, every time I see his name, I'm like, Oh, yeah, Sudge fan. Stevens. 
I think we were in a band once or something. I'm a big Sudge fan, personally. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay, so the next song is Romulus. I think this might be the best song on the album. It's the only song that I would say that I enjoy to any degree. Once when we moved away She came to Romulus for a day Her Chevrolet And I, I still think it's a bit too much. It's still a little cloying to me. But musically, it is the most bearable song for me. It also feels the closest to like where he ends up going with like Carrie and Lowell. Yeah, I mean, it's about his family and it, uh, more autobiographical. And it feels more like deeply felt. Right. It's not a fucking cheeky tourist ad. No. And like the line, I was ashamed, I was ashamed of her. Like that's a real genuine feeling, you know? <laughs> Right. I don't know. I feel like this is a very touching song, actually. I, I, I really do like it. Just be as like something dealing with like the very complicated relationship with your like very messy kind of helpless family who can't get their shit together and that you feel kind of I mean, it's not exactly my experience with my family, but I definitely feel it from this song. Him describing his family is kind of hippie adjacent and them kind of being like all over the place financially and emotionally and you know you can see the genuine side of him i feel like with this and I, yeah I, I don't know i feel like it's a good song yeah there's still a certain like sufyan pretension in the way he phrases things but i think the actual subject of the song is a lot more direct and affecting like when you're talking about like your commentary on your mom smoking in a room and coloring your hair like her as her grandpa dies is by default going to be more affecting than your commentary on, you know, wives and Kmarts or whatever the fuck you're saying about. Yeah. I see what you mean about the terms of phrase, like where it says, once when she had some boyfriends, some wild, she moved away quite far, right. you know, just like the wording. Yeah, it, it feels like un almost unbearably precious, which is not unique to Sofian, but is something I, I wish she would stop. <laughs> That's where party debris comes from. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. But yeah, I do really like this song. I, I do really think it's good. And now we have Allenson Crooked River, which is Frosty Part 2. <laughs> yep, <laughs> still frosty, too frosty, too furious. I mean, it's it sounds like snow falling down. I think that's the obvious idea. It works fine. Yeah, it just, it makes me wish he was more adventurous elsewhere. Because I think they're like, this more minimalist texture work, I think would be really effective if he employed it on a song and not just interstitials. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't know. That's something that Olivia Tremor Control did really well. Again, a much better band. <laughs> the next song is Sleeping Bear, Salt St. Marie. Is that how you pronounce it? 
So Saint Marie. Uh, yeah, this song also aggravates the hell out of me. I actually kind of like this song. I like the layered vocals. It sounds kind of, I, I get I get the 70s thing. The vocals feel more focused. It isn't like the, the backup singer singing, Iroquois, Iroquois, you know, just. Right. It feels like it's trying to be a song rather than an extended arrangement. Yeah. So that's something on its, in its favor. I think I just really don't like the vocal melody. I, I get what you mean about the arrangement, but the melody just turns me off. For some reason, again, it's some innate <laughs> hatred. I get that. Yeah, I think this is kind of a deep cut for me and that I liked it more like the third or fourth or fifth time that I heard it mm-hmm. than at first where it didn't really stand out. It actually feels a bit like a low song to me, like something off of trust or like something from that. Maybe because he says, oh, Lamb of God, tell us your perfect design. Sure. And again, maybe it's because of the layered vocals with him and uh, the backup singers. Like it feels more like their voices complement each other and they're doing an actual melodic line and not, you know, singing Iroquois, Iroquois. Oh, so bad. But yeah, so I like that song. It, it again has kind of a 70s vibe to it for me. The next song, they also mourn who do not wear black for the homeless in Muskegon. This is all good naysayers slash Detroit part three. Yep. It's in 5-8 again. And at, at this point, it's unbearable. At this point, no amount of Charlie Brown is going to save it. This should have just been like one big suite and have been like probably half the length, I think, because it really feels like it just continues from where Detroit and all good naysayers. It feels like a later section of those songs. Which I kind of get as a means of like threading together a concept if we keep returning to these sonic touchstones but they're so long they're so long it's too long for this kind of thing i really don't like the bottom 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 that sets my teeth on edge it's a little too cheesy it just goes on too long i like the texture but it just like again it does feel like it's structured like an electronic dance music but you can't dance to it so it is kind of like it's weird to think about how much this music is so attached to this period mm-hmm. because like there was a, a crowd of kids who like, you know, wanted to dance, but didn't really want to dance. Like they wanted music that sounded like you can dance to it, but they also didn't really want to dance in front of each other. Cause they were too embarrassed. And like so much like early two thousands music is like, Oh yeah, dance. But like no one was actually dancing to that music cause they were too cool to dance. Right. Because that was part of it. So it's like hipster music that has dance components in it because people want that experience, but they're too chicken shit to like dance in front of each other because they're so self-conscious because that's That's, part of being a fucking hipster. That's so real. Yeah, it was. And it feels like that's like what this is where it's like, you know, in a different universe, maybe even 10 years later, this would be structured more like dance music that you could actually dance to. But instead, it's that kind of rickety garden state kind of thing where you're appreciating the textures, but you're vaguely vibing to it, I guess. Yes, it feels vaguely vibing, I think, captures it quite well. Save yourself from recognition. 
appreciating like all the different like little pieces and parts of the instrumentation and like this kind of feeling of this haunted carnival or whatever which was very big at that time i suppose but i i also feel like it's arrangement layering trick at this point he's come back to it several times like it's not novel anymore and it's especially not novel on Oh God. This is a perfect description of Sufjan Stevens' music. He says the line, for the politics are not political. <laughs> they certainly are not. They certainly are not. What are you even trying to say? I think he's talking he's... about elections. He says, if we concentrate and pull resources to the highest pole to beat the highest pole to ever, we will conquer grief. It's kind of like talking about politicians, I guess, but in a way that, again is kind of apolitical. It's just like, right. wow, this is kind of a crazy spectacle. Wow, all these things are happening. Politics, what a concept. Can you imagine? Yeah, the podcast Michael and Us, the politics podcast, that's like their catchphrase is 2000s media being like, politics, what a concept. Yep, it's been what, three years since Bush was elected? <laughs> We're yeah. deep in this shit. Come on, Sufjan. It feels very much like that. Like, wow, what what a spectacle this is. Isn't this crazy that this happened? I know. I mean, it's it's too precious to engage with the with the world on its terms. Okay, next we have Oh God, where are you now? In Pickerel Lake, Pigeon, Marquette, Mackinac. God damn it, Sufjan. I like this song fine if it were three or four minutes long. Yes. I do like the line the devil is hard on my face again for its accidental sexuality. <laughs> I think that's great. Everything else can go to hell. God damn, this song is way too long. Yeah, the it is you saying that gave me douche chills. That, that's how much I get annoyed by it. <laughs> it feels like kind of like he's trying to go for a certain feeling of catharsis, but it feels a little unearned because it's just there's been so many moments like that already and it's not the end of the album like if the album ended no. here maybe even then it's nine minutes it's the longest song this is already a long album and we're, we're getting towards the end this is after you've had this like you know detroit and mourn and like it's just at this point i'm pulling out my hair you know yeah, I mean, I like the first part of this song, where especially where he's like, would the righteous still remain? Like, it's kind of a catchy hook. And I, I don't know, just the way he sings, like, I, I definitely feel the emotion in his voice. It's just that it goes on too long. I, I really think this should be like a three-minute song. It would be it would be much better if it's, this was like a three-minute song because then it would lead into the next two songs better, I think. Yeah, I could maybe bear it, whereas right now even thinking about it hurts me in a deep way. Like, this song really upset me, upsets me when it comes on because by that point I'm so sick of what, like, his excess is. Just to remain. And would my body stay the same? 
He does kind of like a time stretch thing with the brass again at the end, and it sounds very familiar to that Neutral Milk Hotel melody line that I was talking about, so. Yeah. I don't know. It, like, I don't mind any of these textures at all. It's just like, it's a lot of that. And I, I feel like for me, I do like the texture of this album. Like, fair point about the vocals and a lot of the songs. Um, cause I, I never really thought about them before. Weirdly, like this album, I, ha I didn't really think about the vocals at all. And you seem to be more conscious of that. I know this is our weird flip flop. The thing I, I should admit, I also love the textures on this album and I love the way it's recorded. So I'm not talking about it as much because I get so annoyed by the other stuff, but I do think if this album has any like one shining light, I think it is that on a textural level, it's very satisfying to listen to. Yeah, which is why, like, I don't know, especially when we do ranking, I might rank this more highly than you would expect from listening to us talking about this, because I generally have a pretty pleasant experience listening to this album. And I feel like outside of like some of the kitschy parts, I actually just kind of really enjoy this uh, vibe. And I don't feel like anyone else does it quite like he does. It's just that I wish there was a little bit more. Well, and I think there's a the subjective part, which is that if these melodies aren't deeply and innately offensive to you, then they're just bland. And I think a bland melody with great texture is fine. And when that's the case, the texture can take it a long way. I think if these melodic motifs weren't innately troubling to me, I'd be able to vibe to this record a lot more because there's a lot about this record I want to be able to enjoy. I, I'm making fun of it when I call it Charlie Brown ass music, but I do like Vince Garaldi. I like that sound. Mm -hmm. um, and I think conceptually what he's doing like you're saying with the like electronic dance music or even like the the sort of Steve Reich thing of just these constantly undulating layers around a motif. I think that's cool, a cool thing to do in folk. I just wish it was a better songwriter doing it. I feel like part of this reaction comes from one, his like popularity in the ensuing years. Sure. And the fact that he has hit a lot of the same notes with a lot of his albums. Right. And also just like, I generally had a positive opinion of him, but like even listening to that most recent album, I think it soured me a little bit on him a little bit more because I'm like, you really haven't evolved very much. You know, whereas like we can look at artists like, you know, like Liars or something who right. have like evolved immensely. Well, Liars is almost unfair because they evolve with every album, but. Yeah, true. Lower low, I guess. Low, or um, even like. Up until recently. Joanna Newsom, like. Yeah. Like deeply developing. And Sufjan Stevens is that level of famous. Like he is yes. considered at the level of those artists. So it's not he like. He could definitely date Andy Samberg if he wanted to. <laughs> Maybe he would want to, honestly. <laughs> honestly. God, this man is so gay at heart. <laughs> but like, uh, like, I don't think it's unfair to compare him to those because he really is at that level of like fame. And oh, for sure. Fan. My uncle, my like 68 year old uncle loves Sufjan Stevens. Yeah. Didn't like Pitchfork just say like Illinois is going on like a stage show or something? Oh, I don't know. I didn't actually see that, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. Wait, I got to look. This is like big news. Uh, but anyways, go on. While you're looking that up, uh, we can talk about Redford for Yeah, Yeah and Papau. This sounds like a car commercial. It does. This this is most interesting to me because, and I, I had to find this out on, on Wikipedia, it is where The Roots got the name Redford for the album Undone. Oh, interesting. Which is wild to me. I like this as an instrumental. It's kind of suspenseful and ethereal. The problem is, like, at the time when this came out, that kind of texture 
was unusual and yeah. different. But now it is exactly what you would hear in a car commercial. Pretty much. And actually, it became what you would hear in a car commercial short a couple years after this happened. Yeah, it didn't take very long. So the news is, yeah, Illinois is getting a stage show this summer debuting at Bard College. Of course, (laughs) Bard College. Of course. This is what this means. I mean, it's for this is music made for undergrads. That is a a very good way of putting it. Yes. Um, And it was like I I knew a lot of undergrads who still deeply, deeply loved Sufjan. Yeah. My freshman year of college was right when Illinois came out and I was like working at the radio station and everyone was making like, come on, feel the Illinois jokes like constantly. Like it was everywhere. (laughs) I mean, that was the title of it. (laughs) I know, but they were, I don't know. They were making like puns about noise and saying Illinois and stuff. I don't know. Anyway... (laughs) That actually kind of turned me off to that because Sufjan felt like relatively successful or decently known, but not like super everywhere right. before that point. And maybe it was me being a little a little snob, but a little bit of a hipster. Yeah, it actually kind of turned me off a little bit because I already had a relationship with his music, but not so much that I was like, I mean, I like Seven Swans a lot, but I had heard like Captain Beefheart and shit after that. So I was like much more going in a more adventurous or a more esoteric landscape esoteric direction yeah so yeah (laughs) but yeah i like this instrumental it just it's hard to hear it now without you know yeah hearing a car commercial okay so our last song is Vito's ordination song too long (laughs) i think the song is fine it's a pretty good closer Vito is referring apparently to reverend thomas Vito. Aito? I don't know. Ayudo, I think. Ayudo, yeah, Yeah, almost certainly Ayudo, who is featured as a backing vocalist on this song, along with his wife, Monique, and Daniel and Elon Smith, Ellen Smith. Of uh, Danielson Famille. Of Danielson, yeah. It is Danielson family, but it's spelled like Danielson Famille, so. Fair enough. Vito is a pastor of a church in Brooklyn, Resurrection Williamsburg. Wow. (laughs) I wonder if Sufjan still goes to that. I'm sure he lives in fucking Williamsburg. Oh, yeah, he can afford to now. Yeah. There's some good stuff in Williamsburg, but damn, would I not want to live there even if I had the money. Right. Uh... But yeah, I like the, the like Hammond organ, like spare texture at the beginning. And this kind of develops slowly. It feels more like this length is, maybe it's a little too long, but it feels like this length is more earned as the last song on the album for me. To me, I'm just so out of patience by this point. And this song is extremely repetitive. And I could see that being maybe a meditative thing, you know, especially like the end is a chant or sort of like circular lyric. Like I can kind of see the intent at this point in the album Seven minutes is a huge ask. It's true. I mean, I think the latter half of the album is definitely the weaker half, like uh, especially after Romulus. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I like it. I think it because it has a different texture from some of the other songs. Like it feels 
less like he's trying to shove everything on and like it feels a little more considered like there's a very dry you know this is the the classic early 2000s reverb drought mixing right <laughs> the the very dry like drum kit and there's like kind of a, a nice subtle guitar and some organ textures it doesn't feel overdone like uh some of the arrangements on especially like the also mourn who do not wear black in detroit and parts Yes, it is more restrained than those. That's true. And then it does like eventually build up to more of like a the we will live forever and it's always true kind of <laughs> elephant six like you know chorus thing but it, it feels more earned in that case because which is why I wish that was like he stripped away some of that texture on some of the other songs so it feels more like consequential when you actually get there because it does feel like you're just kind of exhausted of the album by now and that exhaustion kind of carries over to the feeling of the song. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it is exhausting. But yeah, they repeat the line, rest in my arms, sleep in my bed. There's a design to what I did and said. I don't really know what that means. No, me neither. Oh, supposedly it's a Christian thing. Of course it is. Maybe it's about intelligent design. <laughs> uh, okay. I actually played some songs from Seven Swans in like my church when I was in high school. <laughs> wow. Because that's his like Christian album. Yeah. I mean, they all are, but yeah. Yeah. I was like, well, this is like actually an overlap between something that I like and could be played in church. And people did like it. So, you know. I mean, people like good music. And if, if Christians can believe it's okay, like I get it. That's why you 2 are was like the only good band my deeply Christian friends would listen to. Oh, they do sound kind of Christian just from the like God screaming from the mountaintops kind of angle. But they also are genuinely quite Christian. <laughs> oh, they are. I didn't I didn't actually know. That. Yeah, I'm going to make sure we do that holiday episode at the end of the year because I still feel bad about making you listening to all you, you can't leave behind. And I still want to make you listen to Concrete Dunes, which is going to be better. Like granddaddy, you're good. Yeah. I also want to do Someday, which came out in 2003. So we'll see how that works. But that'll be fun. Um, yeah, I'm down to do something. I mean, we'll probably do we'll probably do an earlier Granddaddy album for one of our fivers. Yeah, we could do that. We'll figure it out. We'll figure, we'll figure it, it out. out. But yes, that was Michigan by Sufjan Stevens. So where would you rank it? So this has been fun because along with the last album, last episode, I'm basically setting the new bookends of my list. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Lonesome Crowd of West is number one. This is way worse than gay. This is at the bottom of my list. Wow. Oh, my God. Uh, wow. I cannot agree with that. Which I, I think is reasonable and I think speaks to how deep and innate my hatred of this album is. It's as deep as my hatred of Steely Dan. Like, it's in my soul. <laughs> so... You might not like this, but I was considering putting it number eight above Wilco and the Shins and below Broken Social Scene. Wow. I didn't think you put it above the Shins. 
Yeah, I might put it below. I just like the texture of this album. And I, I like the thing with Wilco, I just never was. I like some of the songs on that album, but I just never was invested as much in them. And that The Shins album, I like the songs writing, but I feel, again, more like. I'm kind of more surprised you'd put it over No Code. Yeah, see, that's one that's kind of hard just because no code. It's like I heard it when I was younger and it's like, I don't know. I might switch them. I actually might put Sufjan Stevens at 10 and no code at number eight or something like that. Sure. So that might be where it ends up. I don't know. I just like the texture. It's like almost the opposite of Blazing Arrow in terms of problem. Like they're both two long albums. Mm -hmm. Blazing Arrow has like a much greater variety, including some that I really like, but I enjoy listening to the whole album like more as a vibe with the Sufjan album. So I don't know. It's in that range, but yeah. Yeah, I could see that. So hopefully I offered some minimal defense of, of Sufjan in the yes. midst of our Sufjan hater here. Yeah, I, I apologize if this was a, a dreary slog to listen to me complain about it, but to be fair, listening to this was a dreary slog for me, so. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, it just, it's the way when I record from Seattle, it just has to be an album that you hate. So. <laughs> <laughs> the last time it was The Shins, so. Yeah, well, I like The Shins way more than I like this album. Okay, fair enough. Like, deeply, deeply. What was the other poll winner? What are we doing next week? Okay, so what we're doing next week, or not next week, next episode. Next episode, yes, sorry. Is we are going to do TV on the Radio's Young Liars EP. Oh, yeah. And perhaps maybe even we could fit in the only like 7.8 to get a best new music. Chick, chick, chicks, uh, me and Giuliani down by the schoolyard. I would love to do that. God, chick, chick, chick is only could exist at the time. <laughs> they gave it a best new music in spite of giving it a 7.8, which is kind of weird. But Well, it's, it's the same reason like they gave The Rapture, I think, like a best album of the year because dance punk and electro clash was getting really big. Yeah, there's a calculated aspect to that. So if we have time to do both of those, that would be great since that one's just like a, a single. Yeah, I think we had, we'd have time for both. It, it could be a fun little dual episode. Yes, and a way of talking about New York <laughs> dance ball. New York, New York. The next episode after that is when we're doing our second poll winner, A Promise by Shu Shu, which yes. definitely looking forward to talking about even though... It's neither of our favorite Shushu album. No, but I just love Shushu, so I'm I can't wait. Yes, that'll be a lot of fun. And fun is what we all think of when we think of Shushu. <laughs> it's fun and joy. It's fun in the same way that getting your genitals cut off of your body um, are fun. I don't know why that's. No, it's it is. It is a lot of fun, and everyone should try it. Shushu, uh, the the CBT of music. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, this is uh, the beginning of Kitchfork season two, the best, best new, new music season. scene. <laughs> Our best <laughs> new season. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I hope you all enjoy it. I'm excited because I feel like it really gets into when this era really begins. Like 2002 feels like a transitional year and 2003 feels like where it begins. This is where shit gets real for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been Kitchfork and I've been one of your co-hosts. Max Cohen. And I've been your other co-host, Liz Ryerson. And there is a design to what I did and said on this episode. What we did and said on this episode. So if you don't if you don't agree with our opinions, just know. Take it up with God. 
take it up with God. And also, much like Sufjan Stevens, it's deeply felt. So all I can say is when I see Sudge fan, he's going to insult you. <laughs> this next one's for my niece. My niece, my niece, my niece, my niece, my niece. When I was in the valley of the shadow of death. Where's your pastor? Where's your pastor? When I tell her, she's going to insult you. Should have known better to see what I could see. My black shroud holding down my feelings, a pillar for my enemies. I should have wrote a letter and grieve what I happened to grieve. My black shroud, I never trust my feelings. I waited for the remedy And when I was three Three, maybe four She left us at that video store uh -huh. Oh, be my rose, be my fantasy uh -huh. Oh, be my rose, be my fantasy Thank you.